Now this is all by way of review to begin with. As you may remember, in September I introduced uh, our fall series of studies, and I mentioned how the church historically uh, has a general liturgical outline to mark the year, where the seasons uh, between Christmas and Easter and, 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 or even Pentecost are really devoted to the life of Christ and to studies in the gospel. And then in spring and summer, uh, the teaching is devoted to the New Testament and the theme of Christian discipleship. And then it comes right around then to the fall, where the Old Testament is then taken up as a way to help us prepare for the coming of the Messiah, the promise. That's kind of a general summary that led me then to devote a series of character studies in the Old Testament, and then draw life lessons uh, from the long list that we find of role models, simple but very faithful men and women of faith. Now, to be honest, a series like this could be endless. I mean, if you were to go into the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, you'll find that there's a catalog of names that are to be reckoned with. There, in the first 31 verses, you'll find nine names, all introduced as heroes of the faith with the phrase, by faith, and they did all these things. By faith, by faith, by faith. Nine names to begin with. And then in just one verse, in verse 32, six more names then are added to that list, by faith, by faith, by faith. And finally, then, at the end of all that, a floodgate opens to unleash Uh, what the first verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews describes as a cloud of witnesses that deserve our attention. A whole cloud, a myriad of of witnesses. And trust me, uh, they are not just heroes of the faith, but in actuality they are superheroes of the faith, who as we read in verse 32 there, uh, by faith they conquered kingdoms. It takes a superhero to do that. Uh, They performed acts of righteousness. They they, they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From, from weakness, they were made strong. And they became mighty in war. And they put foreign armies to flight. Trust me, Marvel's X-Men or DC Comics uh, Legion of Superheroes have got nothing on these people, okay? We've got a stable, a cloud of superhero witnesses. So when I was sorting through the names and plotting my preaching plan, my imagination just ran wild. I had a rich, a target-rich environment, uh, and we did Jehom- Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. We'd, I haven't done Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although I was tempted. Uh, you have Obed, you have Methuselah. Uh, boy, I mean, I was going to have me some fun when I was plotting out my, my, my schedule. But in looking over the names, my heart was actually drawn to a few whose lives have in fact left an enduring impression on my soul very personally. A a few biographical moments, uh, lives that were put on display by God that have helped me see his truth reflected with utter clarity. A a few lives that that have been designed to help me identify what it means to be a, a child of God and a man of God in full. And I'd invite you to join with me this morning and look at one man, even though we've been moving historically through the Old Testament, going back in time to one man who possessed two names. Jacob, who became Israel. You'll find him in Genesis chapter 32. 
And as I invite you to turn uh, to, to join with me in learning his lesson, I, I want you to turn to that passage, Genesis chapter 32. As you do, let me set the scene. Now, I trust that the name Jacob might be familiar to you. He's the third in the line of the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. His grandfather being Abraham, his father being Isaac, all three of them were chosen by God to carry out God's promises. And I say chosen because their efforts would in fact produce the chosen people. Now each of the three have their own stories, but what makes Jacob's so unique is the way he, he, he chose to handle the promises that God had given him. You might say that he was the prime example at the very beginning of the age-old principle I'm sure you've heard. And the principle goes this way. God helps those who help themselves. How many have heard that principle? Years ago, I had a businessman who had just become a Christian and had just started getting into reading the Bible. He, he called me at my office, and he had been digging through his Bible, looking for that as a verse. And, and he said, Pastor, he said, I, I, I need your help. Where in the Bible does it say, God helps those who help themselves? Well, I told him it, it, that, that, that that was one of the verses in the book of Hezekiah. Hezekiah chapter 3, verse 2, I believe. Okay, guys, I, I got to, okay. Uh, it didn't take him long to realize, and I hope it didn't take you very long to realize that there really is no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. I, you know, <laughs> whoa, this is scary. And, and in fact, that phrase, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, at least in its current form, didn't come in the Bible. It was coined by Algernon Sidney. I've studied this out. A British philosopher in the 1600s. And he was astonished because like so many, and to be honest, I've checked this out too, there was a survey that was done by the Barna research people that found that 82% of Christians felt that this was a Bible verse. 82%. And Algernon Sidney, he thought it was a Bible verse too, and maybe even one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> well, it isn't. It isn't a commandment, but it is, in fact, a, a principle by which a lot of people have chosen to live their lives. And from birth, that it was how it was for Jacob. Even before he was born, his mother was assured by God that Jacob had a choice position and, and, and was going to live a life of promise. Now, you may know the story. It begins back in Genesis chapter 25, where his mother, Rebekah, was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, who would become, and, and, and Esau would become the firstborn, the big brother. And in Genesis chapter 25, God told her, two nations are in your womb, and the one shall be stronger than the other. The elder, however, will serve the younger. Jacob was the one who was chosen even before birth to be the one to carry the promise of God. But as the story unfolded, the promise of Jacob seemed that it would never be fulfilled, and that his life then became an, uh, an endless string of episodes that where if he were to get his due, he would have to do it by playing off of other people's weaknesses, including his own brother, and do it by deception and by trickery. 
Trickeration. Living by the principle, God would help those who helped himself. And as a man of the world, he was clever and in control, and he was then by that destined for greatness, thinking it to himself, no wonder God wants me on his team. But then there came a moment when everything changed. And it was a moment of crisis, a moment of peril. And we pick up that moment as we turn to the story in Genesis chapter 32. And chances are, it also might be a familiar story to you. It happens in the night, in the night before Jacob and his older brother Esau were to be reunited after almost 20 years apart. Now, the event that separated them wasn't Jacob's finest hour. You may remember the story of how Esau, the older brother, uh, was scammed by, by, by Jacob and as a result lost his inheritance and so much more. And it was through an act of cunning and fraud and trickeration that Jacob succeeded in running away with the family's blessing. And while Jacob went on to become quite successful, Esau was left to stew in his own bitterness. And after 20 years, the time had finally come for Jacob to return and face the music. And you see that at the beginning of chapter 32, verse 5, in the message that he sent. Uh, he sent a message to Esau. And in that message, he, he, he expressed his desire to find favor in Esau's sight. You see that in verse 5? How diplomatic. Can you imagine what was behind that message? Uh, Hey, brother, uh, remember that time I cheated you out of your inheritance? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no hard feelings. Uh, you know, show a sense of humor. <laughs> well, the response that he got from Esau shook Jacob to his core. Look at verse 6. Esau, your brother, is coming to meet you with 400 men. Now, if I were to paraphrase this verse, the message should actually read, Esau, your brother's coming to get you. <laughs> and he's got 400 warriors armed to the teeth. It's no wonder that we read that in verse 7, uh, that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and immediately took measures to protect his treasures, his assets, his net worth. And having taken those measures, he then turns to God with a fairly desperate prayer. You see that in verse 9, this desperation in prayer. Oh God, oh God, oh God, of oh my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, oh Lord, who does say to me, return to your country and your relatives and I will prosper you, verse 10. I am unworthy of your loving kindness and faithfulness. Verse 11, deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. <laughs> well, that prayer sets a scene for the action that occurs immediately after that in the passage. Now, this is a, the type of honest prayer that God answers so well. You know, there's no hint that God is being asked to help someone who can help himself in this, is there? This is someone who has come to the point where he realized he can't help himself. The voice in this prayer is broken. I am weak, Lord, and I need you. Have you ever prayed such a prayer? At the core, this is really, in fact, 
what is known as the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And so the scene changes and the action begins and the story unfolds. We read in verse 22 that while Jacob found himself alone and frightened, facing the darkness, a man joins in a night-long wrestling match with him. Now, forgive me, but I I really do find some degree of humor in this because you get a sense from Jacob that as the fight is going on and as it proceeds, he has this kind of progressive discovery uh, that, that, that maybe he's in over his head in this fight. As you read, this isn't just a man. It is then identified as a mighty man, and maybe not just a mighty man as the fight proceeds, maybe an angel. In fact, if you go to the book of Hosea, uh, it records that, this action in Hosea chapter 12, and it says that he was wrestling with an angel. So you have a man becoming a mighty man and somebody who is capable of actually breaking his hip with a touch of his finger. Is it an angel? This is, this is more than a man. And you can imagine what's going through Jacob's mind in the midst of this struggle. Who is this guy? And at daybreak, we read in verse 26, it finally dawns on him. You didn't get the joke there. At daybreak, it finally dawned on him? Okay. Um, That he's wrestling with God. And, And at that moment, God cripples him. And and Jacob has got nothing left, then, but but his grip. And and so with total and desperate determination, he grabs a hold and he says, I will not let you go without your blessing. I will not let you go, God, without your blessing. And so it says here that God blessed him, not just for the moment, but with a blessing that would in fact change his entire life by giving him a whole new name. Look at verse 29. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but now Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have now overcome. The contrast between the two names could not be more profound. The name Jacob comes from the Hebrew word for supplanter, which basically describes a manipulator, someone who is prone to take matters in his own hands and live by that principle, God will help those who help themselves. Um, Supplanter, Jacob. But Israel, I love that name. I love the way Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner defines it. He says, Israel is a verbal name. And it conveys the meaning, may God strive for him. But even now, it it takes on new coloring from this occasion, and it adds Jacob's side of the struggle as being one who will not let go of the God who will struggle for him. They're locked into a tight relationship that will not let go. Now, when you read the rest of the story for yourself, how the brothers are reunited and how each then come to a place of peace and reconciliation, you can read it for yourself. But, but, and here pay pay very special attention to me. What I find most intriguing about this passage is what it does not say. 
Here is where the deepest lesson lies, by what we do not read. It never says here or anywhere else in the Bible that Jacob is ever healed or made whole of his being crippled. There is no indication that God ever healed him, and I can vouch for the fact that according to archaeology, there were no orthopedic hospitals or physical therapists available in that time and day and age. There were no surgical treatments, there were no hip replacements, there was no physical therapy at the time that would have been able to make him whole. In fact, there is every indication that from this point forward, he went through life as a cripple. The Old Testament lesson that we had ended with him limping because of his hip. How painful that would be. Read one verse uh, further there uh, in verse 32. This limp, in fact, becomes a legacy. There we read, Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat of the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because there God touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. Now you may wonder, so what? What's the point? From that day forward, Israel was a cripple and he was broken. But every step that he would take would become for him a reminder that from that day forward, he was living his life in complete dependence upon God and God's blessing and in utter reliance upon the Spirit of God. And he possessed a new name that made it so. A new name that would make it, allow him to make it through life blessed as the man who would not, could not let go of the God who would not, could not let go of him. And I have to think that is the, the way it must be for a son or a daughter of Israel, for anyone who would be known as a child of God, for you, for me, and for all who are blessed by God with a whole new name. Oh, I, I, I realize that there are those who ridicule our faith as a crutch. Christianity is just a crutch, to which I say, absolutely, and a powerful one at that. Let's face it. I can't think of anyone who can go through their entire life without a scar, unbroken, And you can add to that the judgment made in the book of Isaiah where all suffer from sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are broken, every single one, crippled in our own way. But instead of this brokenness being a curse, a reason to live life, a life of regret or angerness or bitterness, it becomes for us, because of our relationship with God, a divine opportunity to receive a blessing. Having laid hold of God, knowing that he is more than able to uphold us. It has been my experience over the years that those who have been broken have found that to be the moment that has defined their faith. 
and has allowed them then to treasure whatever it is that has broken them, not as a scar or a shame, but as something that has become a beauty mark because it was at that point that they began to live a life with God where every step forward would become a journey of dependence and of reliance upon his presence and the power of his spirit. On the flip side, I worry most about those who assume themselves to be whole and strong and utterly without need, capable of doing it just fine by themselves. Self-sufficient, independent, and strong, they see no need for God, and I fear for them the most. Because they are wrong. You are wrong. I love the reality check that I heard from Vance Havner, a simple old Baptist preacher from Appalachia. He said it this way. He said, God excels with broken things. Broken soil to produce a crop. Broken clouds to give the rain. Broken grain to give the bread. Broken bread to give the strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is the Apostle Paul who reveals the secret that we must all learn. That is only when we are weak that we become strong all by God's grace, which is more than sufficient for our need. That's the truth. That's the truth we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and it applies to every single one of us. So much so that the truth really is, God helps those who cannot help themselves and must trust him. I caught the beauty of this lesson a few years ago, actually 2007, from my friend uh, Robert Weber. Some of you may be familiar with the name. He, he's written a lot of books on worship, uh, and for me, he was a teacher, he was a, a colleague, he was a mentor, and he was a friend. And as part of the circle of friendship with him, I received an email one day informing us that he had not only been diagnosed with an aggressive cancer, but had only been given a few days, weeks at most, to live. It was a profoundly touching note of farewell that, that, that touched me to the core and, 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 and took me to my knees. And, and, and while I prayed for Bob, I kept my eyes open on the news for his obituary for a report of his death. About three months later, I was surprised to get another email from Bob. In it, announced that he was still alive and kicking, and that the cancer had gone into remission. And as he, he, as he thanked us for our prayers, he wrote something I will never, ever forget. While some people were celebrating this as a healing, he confessed that while thankful for prayer, he wasn't that convinced that he was healed. After all, the human statistics are pretty overwhelming. One out of one die. And, but while he couldn't claim he a full healing, he did share the lesson that he and his wife had learned. Their prayers, he said, had taken on a completely different tone. Instead of praying for complete healing, theirs had become this prayer, a prayer for a healing of the day. Just linger on that phrase for just a moment. A healing for the day. 
Every morning, they would welcome the day with prayer and, and, say, and put it this way, God, grant us a healing for the day. And every evening then, having survived the day, th- th- their prayer then became a matter of thanksgiving, a thanksgiving for the healing of that day. And day by day, their prayers had become a habit of trust and dependence upon God and had placed themselves directly in his care. And as he reported in that note, as of the writing of that note, they had at that point collected almost three months' worth of daily healings. (laughs) What a treasure. And at the end of his note, he made the comment, I don't know why, It has taken me this long in life to learn such a wonderful lesson. (laughs) Imagine that. Every day in prayer, taking hold of God and hearing them say, I've got a hold of you and my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. You are a child of Israel. As it turned out, a few months later, the cancer did return aggressively, and Bob died. But not without a testimony of fulfilled promise and faith. As his wife then wrote us a final note of the legacy that they shared over the six months, she said that they had over 200 daily healings on their record that God had granted. 200 healings. What a gift. What a wonderful grace. And with that, I come to the end of this message and invite you to pray the same for yourself, along with me. And as we pray together, I want you to take a moment of silence and visit that place of your own personal brokenness so that you might offer it to him and allow you to turn your scars into something beautiful. Made beautiful because in this prayer you are declaring your reliance upon his spirit to steady you, to touch you, to heal you, to show his grace.